Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest has been called the master stylist of the English language. I'm talking, of course, about John Banville, who joins us today with a cold, I'm afraid, uh, to talk about his latest novel, The Infinities. John, welcome. Hello. I have a cold, but I should try not to die on air. If you do, it will be an exclusive. Now, um, regular listeners of the show will know that we always begin by asking our guests to read a bit from their latest books. So before we begin chatting, John, can you please read to us a little bit from The Infinities? Of course, I'll read the opening couple of pages, uh, just to give you the flavor of what it sounds like. Of the things we fashioned for them, that they might be comforted, Dawn is the one that works. When darkness sifts from the air like fine soft foot and light spreads slowly out of the east, then all but the most wretched of humankind rallies. It is a spectacle. We immortals enjoy this minor daily resurrection. Often we will gather at the ramparts of the clouds and gaze down upon them, our little ones, as they bestir themselves to welcome the new day. What a silence falls upon us then, the sad silence of our envy. Many of them sleep on, of course, careless of our Cousin Aurora's charming matutinal trick. But there are always insomniacs, the restless ill, the lovelorn tossing on their solitary beds, or just the early risers, the busy ones with their knee bends and their cold showers and their fussy little cups of black ambrosia. Yes, all who witness it greet the dawn with joy, more or less, except, of course, the condemned man, for whom first light will be the last on earth. Here is one standing in a window in his father's house watching the day's early glow suffuse the sky above the mass trees beyond the railway line. He is condemned not to death, not yet, but to a life into which he seems he does not properly fit. He is barefoot and wearing pajamas that his mother on his arrival last night found him somewhere in the house. Threadbare cotton, pale blue with a bluer stripe. Whose are they? Whose were they? Could they be his from long ago? If so, it isn't very long ago, for he is big now, and they're far too small, and pinch him at the armpits and the fork. But that is the way with everything in this house. Everything pinches and chafes and makes him feel as if he were a child again. He's reminded of how, when he was a little boy here, his grandmother would dress him up for Christmas or his birthday, or some other festival, tugging him this way and that, and spitting on a finger to plaster down a stubborn curl. And how he would feel exposed, worse than naked, and those are really outmoded, scratchy, short-trousered tweed suits, the colour of porridge that the old woman made him wear, and the white shirts with starch collars, and, worst of all, the tartan dicky bows that had afforded him a warm, vindictive pleasure to pull out to the limit of their elastic and get snap back with a pleasingly loud smack when someone was making a speech or singing a song when the priest was holding up the communion wafer like, he always thought, the nurse and the hospital sweepstakes tickets vanishing aloft the winning number. And that is how it is. Life, tight-buttoned life, sits him ill, making him too much aware of himself, and what he glumly takes to be is an alterable littleness of spirit. There we are. Now, um, that, that passage reminds me of the narrative structure that you've set up in the book, the way we begin with Hermes and we slip down into the human in that case, Adam Jr. Tell me a little bit about, um, I guess, about Hermes' 
omniscience and the, the relationship between him and the humans? Well, I mean, the omniscience, I slipped into the, I slipped into the notion, I slipped into the notion of being a god, you know, practically comfortably, uh, all novelists see themselves to be gods. Um, uh, the book, to some extent, is based on the same Heinrich von Christ called Amphitryon. I hear you listening, switching off their sets already. Um, a wonderful play by a wonderful German dramatist, largely forgotten in the English-speaking world, but very great dramatist. And Amphitryon, Christ's ambition was to build the Greek drama with Shakespearean burlesque. Uh, and in Amphitryon, he really succeeds in doing that. The god Zeus comes to earth because he's fallen in love with a mortal woman. He brings his son uh, Hermes with him. And I originally was going to base the book quite closely on the play, but of course novels have their own rules and their own laws, uh, and it broke free from it. There is still uh, the vestiges of the, of the play behind the book. Uh, its skeleton is still there. Hermes is a, a prankster. He's a, a cynic, uh, and he is terribly jealous of mortals, as all gods are, because not only are we capable of dying, but we're capable of loving, and the gods don't know what love is at all. Even though they invented us, we invented love and fooled them and escaped from them. So it's, in a way, it's about the predicament of being human, and the best way of looking at the predicament of being human in this book is to look at from the perspective of a god. Yes, uh, a reflection on mortality, I suppose. Well, yes, I suppose it is. Um, but then, as Spinoza says, the wise man thinks only of death, but all his meditations are a meditation upon life. And I think that's true. Uh, we're, you know, we are the the only species, as far as we know, with any species who are acutely aware of our mortality, aware of death, aware that we will end, uh, and this gives us, uh, it's a peculiar privilege, but also a peculiar anguish that we have. And there's a character in the book, uh, Rex the dog. Rex the dog is, you know, he's taking care of the human beings, he takes them for walks, he eats the awful food they give him, he, pretend to enjoy gnawing on a bone when he got it and having a nice juicy steak. Uh, but there's one thing that fascinates him and puzzles him about the mortals that he's dealing with is the fact that uh, there's something wrong with him. There's something strange about them. They, their laughter is always tinged with hysteria. Their sadness is always somehow out of proportion to the cause of the sadness and of course what he can't figure out is the fact that the mortals know that they're not immortal that they are mortals and that they will die yes but then of course the, the gods aren't really alive either in the sense of life so it's the death that gives the life the meaning well yes I mean I've, I've always found this to be the case that death is what gives life its sweetness and its acuteness and its, its, uh, its tenderness gives it its terror as well, of course, but you know, we wouldn't be alive fully if we could know that we were going to die. Uh, we envy the animals, of course, we envy our dog sitting on the hearth in front of a nice fire, you know, dreaming about chasing things, but we don't really, you know, we envy that brutish uh, comfort, but we would rather be us with all our problems and all our horrors and all our terrors, but also all our 
exquisite joys. Yes, and I suppose we envy the gods too, but we wouldn't, you know, if we had that knowledge. I don't think we'd give up the death. Well, we certainly envy the gods their capacity to change themselves. I think this is one of the one of the themes of the book is that the gods are capable of being anywhere and anything that they wish to be. And of course, we would love to do that. But this book is not about the gods. This book is about human beings. Uh, the gods are just a, a way for me to get a novel written. Uh, I'm really writing about, as I said, the predicament of being human. Uh, yes. The wonderful predicament of being human. And it's lovely to have that god perspective, the novelist perspective, if you like, of being able to stand back and look at life from somebody who's not in it. Well, it allowed me to play in a in a quite a uh, <laughs> in many ways quite a silly way, uh, but I liked uh, playing with that. I liked playing with the notion of immortality, the notion of godliness, uh, and the gods, of course, the Greek gods. And this is what's so wonderful about the Greek mythology is that the gods are just like we are. They're as bad as we are. They're just as lustful and mendacious and they're just <laughs> quite awful as we are they just happen to have a lot more powers than we have yeah. and of course the novelist is a kind of god in his own tiny tiny world I invent these creatures I make them I make them you know I set them moving I let them walk around and pretend to be human uh, so in a way uh, I mean, all works of art are at a certain level about art itself so this book is a as well as being about human beings and that God, it's also about what it is to make a work about. Yes, there's one theme that Hermes keeps hinting at, and that is the illusory nature of separateness, the, that you know he and Zeus aren't necessarily separate creatures. Yes, of course. I mean, as you said, I'm only omniscient sometimes. Uh, and that's the nature of the Greek gods, that their powers are very limited indeed. Uh, that's the genius of the Greeks. I mean, this, all this was dreamed up three or four thousand years ago. And it contains, uh, you know, the Greek mythology, the notion of the, the Greek gods. It contains all the, well, I won't say all the answers, but certainly it contains a picture of what it is to be alive. Uh, you know, for every emotion that we have and every fury and every tenderness, there is a god and there's a godly. Uh, um, an analogue for us um, and this this is what's so beautiful and lots and lots of people uh, especially at this end of the, the sphere uh, you know say to me oh but you know you talk about the gods and I have to go and look them up and I say well you should go and look them up you should know about them this was one of the most wonderful accounts of being human that was ever given and it was given by dreaming up a, a, a world of people who were superhuman. This is one of the great ironies about the, the and of course Freud started this so cleverly, that, uh, you know, the gods are not about heaven or about, you know, the next life. They're about being human and about this life. Yes. And you've called yourself a playful writer. You called yourself a playful writer today and um, in other interviews. Do you think that sometimes people tend to take you and your work a little too seriously and miss the fun at times? A little too seriously. Oh, my God. They're <laughs> much too seriously. Look, my trouble is that they, 
I thought, first of all, when I was young, for some reason, I got the awful reputation of being a writer as a writer, which is the worst thing that can happen to because if you're a writer's writer, readers don't read you. <laughs> There's not enough writers around who are willing to buy my books uh, to keep me going. So that was a bad thing. And then they take me suddenly. Um, and, you know, solemnity and seriousness are two entirely different things. I'm not in any way solemn. I'm very serious indeed. I'm very serious about my craft. I'm very serious about <clears throat> making it beautiful and as well, yes, it's beautiful as I possibly can. Beauty is a sort of embarrassing word these days. It's like sex for the Victorians. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm coughing. Uh, beauty makes me cough on me. <laughs> but I believe that, that this is one of the, the maybe the main uh, task and duty of the artist is to make beautiful things. Uh, this is all we can do, you know. People nowadays, novelists are very earnestly thinking how they write a novel about 9-11 or about the Iraq war or you know, whatever the latest thing is. But artists don't have anything to say about these things. And, you know, we're, we're limited in one way and we're limitless in another. But we make these beautiful, timeless things. Um, that's what we should be doing. We have no, no political role or social role or moral role or philosophical role in the world. We're artists. It's an entirely different thing. And I constantly champion that, but it's constantly misunderstood that I'm either regarded as frivolous or as horribly solemn. You know, I'd like to think I'm neither, but I am serious about what I do. Yes, this is Auden's, um, you know, poetry changes nothing. It goes where politics doesn't. Well, yes, and what he said is poetry makes nothing happen. Yes. It's kind of an ambiguous um, term, and... Uh, Making nothing happen is quite a, a good thing because making nothing nothing happen is actually a perfect description of creativity. You make nothing happen in the world. You know, what was nothing is now suddenly happening. Yes. So you know. Yes, it's quite a different reading to, I think, the way many people will read that. That's what Auden was. <laughs> like all good poets, he was very subtle and very ambiguous. Yes. Now, talking about crowd pleasing um, and about seriousness. <laughs> we were talking about crowd pleasing, were we? <laughs> well, maybe about the. Um... You know, when I when I uh, when I told my publisher years ago the kind of book that I was writing in in uh, <laughs> in the Infinities, and I described it and then Fred Lamont said, "Oh God, John, yes, another crowd pleaser." <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thinking of um, your alter ego, Benjamin Black, because he is the crowd pleaser part of you, isn't he? Well, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about him today. He's a strange creature. He's, he's sort of an odd bedfellow. Uh, I used to think that I invented him out of a sort of a jeu d'esprit, you know, it was just this uh, playful thing, the absolutely playful side of me. But I now think that in a way, he allows me to write straightforward novels, whereas old Bandle can do something else, which is closer, I think, to poetry. You know, my friend, John McGahan, late and much lamented John McGahan, used to say, there's verse and there's prose and then there's poetry, and poetry can happen in either. And since he was a novelist like me, he said, it happens more often in, in prose than it does in verse. Uh, but I think that's true. Um, 
so, but black allows me to be a, a prose writer without, if you like, the poetry, but with craft. And I, you know, before you become an artist, you have to be a craftsman. At least that used to be the notion. Not anymore. Yeah, but I still hold to it. But you have to learn your craft before you can pretend to be an artist. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, my God. I may die. You're, you're doing very well. Another explicit. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, do, do you find that Benjamin and John feed one another? That that you know they influence one another's writing styles? No, I mean I worked in journalism for twenty-five years to earn a crust. I didn't write journalism, but I was <coughs> what we called here sub-editor, that you called copy editor, uh, defined by an old editor of mine. Uh, wonderfully as some editors are people who change other people's words and to go home in the dark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I did for 35 years. And I love doing it. Uh, I love tinkering with words, especially in other people. Um, so in a way, Benjamin Black is kind of super sub-editor. He's doing a kind of uh, tinkering, a craftsman's tinkering with words, uh, which I'm quite proud of. I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud of old Bandle's books, which are never good enough, but uh, I am proud of Benjamin's uh, work. Because, as I say, you know, it's, there's a great thing to be said for being a craftsman. Yes, and I suppose there's a completeness. I mean, you, he's, he's done what he set out to do. Well, yes, yeah, that's well put. That's exactly, uh, you know, when I set out to write a Bandle book, I know what I want, but when I get to the end of it two or three or four years later, I realize I have botched the whole thing. Uh, whereas Benjamin, uh, in a lesser time, will produce a finished object, and there's a great, you know, there's a great satisfaction in that. And I hope that satisfaction comes across to the reader, I mean, otherwise there's no point in doing it. Yes, although I think the reader will see satisfaction in Banville's work as well. But then, uh, well, then, I want more than satisfaction for Bible work. I want delight and, you know, uh, change. All kinds of things. Mm. Uh, big words that I wouldn't dare use. <laughs> but they might not be crowd pleasing. Um, well, no, it's just, you know, one can't be too, uh, too demanding of, uh, of leadership. I mean, if you make a work of art, you make it you realize that you're making it for a series of times. You make it for your own time. <coughs> you make it for the time after your own time. You make it maybe for hundreds of years. No, you don't know. Um, one doesn't know what will happen to what my work may die with me, for all I know. And I won't know whether that's the case or not. But I would like to think. Somebody a hundred years, five hundred years from now would pick up a book if there are still books, uh, and would read a sentence or a paragraph and say, you know, that's a beautiful thing. Mm. Yes. Uh, tell me just a little bit about Adam Senior. Um, was he based on somebody? Did you have a mathematician or physicist in mind when you created him? No, I years and years ago, back in the 70s, I started to write a series of four books. 
that would be about Copernicus, Kepler, thought of about Newton. Uh, and then I was going to write what I really wanted to write, which is a book, a novel based on life of a 20th century physicist, who would be a combination of Einstein and Heisenberg and various people. When I came to do the fourth book, I realized I couldn't do it. And to some extent, uh, I suppose Adam Godley is that figure now, but he's a fantasy figure because he lives in an alternative world and he has done extraordinary things, which has brought, which has brought uh, you know, <laughs> universal energy from salt water. <laughs> Why did I get the nerve to do such a horrible joke? Um, so it's you know it's a, it's it's a very again a very playful version of what I set out to do many years ago. Yes, in your interview with Ramona Koval, um, you mentioned that born writers are people for whom reality is not real until it's passed through the mesh of language. Uh, I love that oh, quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's true. Um, I, I know it's true. Certainly in my case. Um, I have to test reality by by putting it into words. It's pathetic, really. I mean, you know, we we can't live so we write instead. I'm an unreconstructed 19th century <laughs> romantic, uh, in that I believe, you know, that that the artist has a wound, a terrible wound that he has to keep assuaging and tending and bandaging, and you know, he does it with words. Uh, as I say, I'm <laughs> only constructed romantic. Yes, yeah, so I think though that that's a theme that that seems to underpin a lot of the infinities as well. That um, writers don't just pass reality through the mesh of language; they create reality through their language. Well, I don't think that we create language, but uh, create reality, but we certainly heighten it. I mean the the I had a lovely quote the other day. You know, probably like everywhere else, Australia has all these radio stations that are churning out sort of comforting music and music to relax by. And one of the conductors started one of his concerts by saying, you know, music is not to relax by. Music is to stimulate. And art is to stimulate. It's a stimulation. It's not something to let you escape from yourself and dream about other things. It's to make you think about your own life and let the world that you live in. A good artist can pick up a pebble pebble from the street, from the road, and give it such attention and such concentration that it becomes an object of extraordinary, if not beauty, well, beauty, yes, but an object of such extraordinary intensity, of intense reality, that the reader or the listener or the viewer of the painting or whatever uh, comes to realize that the ordinary is entirely extraordinary. That's what art does. I mean, this is what art is always, it's, it's not about the extraordinary, it's always about the ordinary. It says, look, here's the ordinary thing, but looked at through the eyes of an artist, and looked at through the eyes of, you know, through your eyes with, you know, the benefit of, of, of an artist's help. It's saying, the ordinary is entirely extraordinary. Everything is extraordinary. Uh, this is this is this is the great glory of being alive. That the ordinary is not ordinary at all. It glows everywhere we look at it. 
And of course, you know, we can't spend our lives. You know, I wouldn't want to be in Wordsworth, you know, gloating over daffodils and so on, you know, constantly. But we look at the ordinary things around us and, and I say, see how extraordinary they are. I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself, but it's a, it's a simple truth. Yes, a powerful truth, too. Look, look at anything close enough and with the right perspective. Yes, you know, I mean, we, 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 we spend our lives passing amongst familiar things, and they're so familiar that we cease to see them. <laughs> I have to be aware of something to become into a horrible <clears throat> new age nice person, which I'm not. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this is, this is, I do believe this is what art does. It's only what it does for me. And every artist starts making the kind of art that he would like to have himself. I mean, you know, we, I write the kind of books that I would like to read. Uh, and the kind of books that I like to read quicken life for me, quicken reality and illuminate it and make it glow. I mean, it's, you know, a good work of art to read a good work of art, to listen to a good work of art, to contemplate a good work of art is almost a sexual experience because, you know, the, the, the object glows in the way that, that uh, you know, a, a loved body glows when we when we concentrate on it, you know, with with um, with real passion. Yes, yes, that's wonderful. Now, look, I, you're doing brilliantly, and I know you're you're desperate to um, give your voice a rest. I'll ask you one more question, and then I'll wrap up. Um, okay, before I croak. That's right. <laughs> in all senses of the word. <laughs> that's it. Now, I, I know you're working on another novel. Um, the best book you've ever written. <laughs> can, can we have yes, a little, yes. uh, just a little hint of, of where you're heading with that? Oh, it's very complicated. It goes back to a couple of books I wrote. It goes back to my novel Eclipse and to my novel Shroud, and it revisits those people, and it's digging up some ancient history, and I'm finding it very interesting. I started it again as a kind of really but uh, I've done about, you know, nine, ten thousand words of it, uh, to great amazement. And uh, it's going well, which, of course, makes me deeply suspicious. If it's going well, there's going to be something badly wrong with it. But, um, you know, it has lots of plot. And, uh, again, lots of fun, I hope. I didn't know. I'm having some fun with it now. Come many years from now. <laughs> I'll be treading through mud up to my elbows. But uh, for now, it's, it's going well. You'll all be glad to know it's going well for, for Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. I, re I really appreciate you coming on with the call. Okay. I'll, I'll let you rest. <laughs> yes. Um, and that is. Bye. Thanks for coming, John. Now, this is our last show of 2009. Our next guest is Margaret Hawkins, who joins us in January to talk about her novel, A Year of Cats and Dogs. All the best for a happy holiday, and thanks again, John. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.